The meeting will come to order. Welcome to the July 13th, 2023 meeting of the Human Rights Commission. I'm Commission Chair Karen Clopton, and I want to thank our San Francisco Human Rights Commission staff, Amelia Martinez, Bankhead, Hatim Mansori, and Anjanette Coates for providing technical assistance with today's meeting. Now I would like to open tonight's meeting with the Ramatush Olone land acknowledgement. Commissioner Pimentel. Next slide, please. We are on an unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramachahon, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As indigenous stewards of this land and in current with their tradition, the Ramachahon have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten the responsibilities as caretakers of this place, as well as for all people who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramachas community and by affirming their servant rights as the first people. Thank you, Commissioner. Secretary McKnight, do you have any announcements? This evening's meeting is being held in San Francisco's City Hall, 1 Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place in room 416. Members of the public can join us in person or participate remotely. Public comment will be available on each item on the agenda. Each speaker will be allowed two minutes. People attending in person will be called to speak first, followed by those attending remotely. Anyone calling in, please mute your phone until last to speak. Please use the raise hand icon to indicate you'd like to participate in public comment. Thank you, Secretary McKnight. Would you please uh, call the, the roll? Item one, call to order and we'll call commissioners. As I call your name, please affirm attendance by saying aye. Chair Karen Clopton. Aye. Vice Chair Ann Champion Shaw. Aye. Commissioner Rodrigo Duran. Commissioner Hasib Emran. Aye. Commissioner Mark Kelleher. Aye. Commissioner Jason Johnson. Commissioner Jason Pellegrini. Present. Jason, excuse me, Commissioner Leah Pimental. Present. Commissioner Michael Sweet. Commissioner Irene E. Riley. Present. Chair, we have quorum and the meeting can be called to order. Thank you. Please call the next item. Item two, general public comment. Members of the public may address the commission on matters that are within the commission's jurisdiction and are not on today's agenda. This is a discussion item. Now we'll open public comment. Are there any members of the public attending in person who would like to comment on this item? Chair, I see no persons attending in person who wish to offer a comment on this item. Are there any persons uh, who would like to provide testimony remotely? Please use the raised hand icon. Chair, I see no persons attending remotely who wish to make comment on this item. 
Seeing none, public testimony is now closed. Please call the next item. Item three, adoption of the June 22nd, 2023 meeting minutes. A review and anticipated adoption of minutes from the commission's June 22nd, 2023 commission meeting. This is a discussion and possible action item. Minutes from the commission meeting were distributed electronically. The meeting video is available on the Human Rights Commission website and transcription will be available upon request to the commission secretary. Now we will open public comment on this item. Are there any members of the public attending in person who would like to comment? Chair, I see no persons attending in person who wish to offer comment on this item. Are there any members of the public who would like to provide testimony remotely? Please use the raised hand icon. Chair, I see no persons attending remotely who wish to offer comment on this item. Seeing none, public comment on this item is closed. Commissioners, have you reviewed the minutes? Are there any amendments, additions, or concerns? Seeing none, are there any, uh, is there a motion to approve the minutes as submitted? I second. Commissioner Riley has moved approval and Commissioner Pimentel has seconded. Are there any objections? Then by unanimous consent, the minutes from the June 22nd commission meeting are approved as submitted. Secretary McKnight, please call the next item. Item four, minority mental health. In recognition of Minority Mental Health Awareness Month, presentation on the impact of complicated grief in minority communities. Presentation will be by Bishop Ernest L. Jackson, Senior Pastor, Grace Tabernacle Community Church. There will be public comment on this item. I'd like to welcome Bishop Jackson and thank you for taking the time to join us this, this uh, evening. Our work here at the Human Rights Commission as a city department focuses on a range of solutions to address health inequities and other inequities in our city and society as a whole and seemingly buried in the outcomes of these, uh, especially healthcare inequities are its effects on people, particularly our youth who suffer from the epigenetic trauma afflicted on them by the environments they're raised in. Uh, the, this trauma affects them throughout their lives. It affects their families, their communities, and uh, in our opinion, it's morally reprehensible that we do not address this as the epidemic that it is. And again, thank you so much for coming. Uh, and to talk to us about mental health in our communities and hopefully some pathways and recommendations for the future. Bishop Jackson, the floor is yours. Thank you, President, for inviting me here and just this good evening. And when he asked me to do this, um, 
actually, it's one of the things that uh, one of my, I shouldn't say favorite topic, but it's a topic that I have passion for. And it's something that I have been trying to advocate uh, that the churches address as well, uh, because mental illness is such a pervasive and far-reaching uh, subject and issue in our communities. And one of the things that why I wanted to address it to churches because uh, I don't know how many of you attend church, but I'm of the Pentecostal tradition, if you know anything about that. And one thing that uh, is important to understand when someone comes into your church and they're acting out of sorts, we don't want to denigrate that or their condition by saying it's a demon. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is this is a very important subject, and I thank you for inviting me to come. I, I just want to speak for a few minutes on the impact of grief in uh, minority communities. Uh, as I said, it's a very important subject, and I want to start off by talking about trauma, grief, and loss. It's a subject that I uh, studied quite a bit when I was in graduate school. And it's very difficult to separate the two, uh, the three actually, uh, from where I'm gonna go is to bring up the subject of what's called complicated grief. So trauma, grief, and loss are complex uh, concepts that, that have a profound impact on all of us. Uh, we all just went through uh, COVID and what it what made it traumatic for us that we were, we were afraid that we would get it. We were afraid that we would die from it. We knew people who, who got it and who passed away. So it became internalized, even though we tried to wade through and go through it uh, with a shield on, we were affected, probably lost some sleep. So it's, trauma is an emotional response to a deeply distressing or disturbing event or an experience. And traumatic experiences can be triggered by a single event like a car accident or a natural disaster, or by a series of events such as childhood abuse or neglect. Then there's grief. Grief is a, a natural emotion response to loss. I venture to say all of us have experienced grief at one time or another. It's a process of adjustment to the death of a loved one, the end of a relationship, or the loss of one's job or one's home. Loss is the, is the absence of something that was once present. It's the absence of someone who was once present, such as a loved one, a job, or it could be physical, somebody gets hurt, uh, they lose a limb, it could be mental as well. And so the three of those together, really, and they, they, it's difficult to disconnect them because they're all together. And one thing about my next topic is, is complicated grief. Complicated grief is, in the simplest form, it's uh, a mental health condition that's characterized by prolonged or intense grief following the death of a loved one or following the loss. Uh, case in point, um, a, a child loses a mother. 
or and after that the father dies or a sibling dies, uh, maybe in close succession. If there's not time enough to grieve or get over one, the next thing you're back in the throes again of grief. Together, those compounded empirical uh, issues actually compound what is complicated grief. In some cases, uh, complicated grief manifests as a result of a prior traumatic experience and loss that has not been resolved. It's important to understand that everyone handles grief differently. Some people are very stoic. Doesn't mean that they're not hurting, but maybe because of their culture, their background, they've been told to keep a stiff upper lip or something like that. In some cases, uh, complicated grief manifests as a result of a prior, I think I said that, prior experience, something that's happened. Um, it's, it's important to understand that everyone grieves and they grieve differently and people who continually experience trauma and loss may become insensitive over time and accept the ongoing experiences as the norm. This is something that we see in the African-American community. My church is in Bayview Hunters Point. Um, as a pastor, I uh, have a lot of experience with trauma, grief, and loss. I don't think I need to explain to you the, the incidences of violence, Black-on-Black um, -black crime in Bayview Hunters Point. Uh, we seem to be somewhat at a lull at this point, but there have been times where um, I have attended two funerals a week. I have a just in my own experience of complicated grief, which I didn't realize I was going through. It was... Uh, uh, a month that uh, I can't, I lost track of the number of funerals I was attending of young men who were 19, 20, in their early 20s, being shot down. And I was attending these services. And uh, I think one of the last services I attended, I had to, I did the committal service, which is at the cemetery, where you commit the, the body to uh, to the ground. And at the end of that, a heaviness came over me to the point that I could barely walk to my car. And I didn't associate what was going on at the moment. And when I finally got home and, and tried to get some rest, I could not sleep for three days. And I kept going over what's wrong with me, what's wrong with me. And I realized that I was going through complicated grief. I was grieving for all of those young men, for their parents. Their parents were there, their siblings, their grandparents. They were traumatically uh, impacted and they were grieving. Some of the people in the community had attended as many funerals as that I had. And so when you continue to experience grief, one right after another, it has a huge effect on you. One thing that uh, in the community uh, is an example, I wanna share this with you as well. In the event that a young, a, a young man uh, watches his, sees his brother 
gunned down. And he, he says to himself, I'm going to get retaliation one of these days. He's probably six, seven years old, but he's devastated by what? Trauma, grief, and loss. And later on, maybe in the course of, of, of that week or month, so his little friend gets killed. And so now here's this young child growing up bombarded by trauma after trauma, devastation after devastation, and he becomes insensitive. He gets to the point that one day he now has his own gun and he's now driven to avenge his friends and his brothers. One of the things that, that is not happening in communities of color is that there's a stigma about mental health. The stigma about going to a clinical psychologist or a uh, psychiatrist to get the help that you need. And when that those issues are not resolved, then here is prolonged, complicated grief. Um, there, was a, there was a time in Bayview, uh, and it was the article that was in the Chronicle that talked about how close-knit the families are on the hill and, and how uh, they would go to picnics together, how they would go to uh, uh, ball games and uh, the children would be out playing. And then something would occur that would start a division in uh, the neighborhoods like that. There are invisible lines that you do not cross. There are people that you... And if they live on the other side of that line, you cannot interact with them. And when that happens, then you're opening up yourself for violence. One of the things that can help is to start encouraging, starting at the youngest, our young people to talk about this, to get some help, to get the help that they need, to uh, see a psychiatrist. If there's no one in the community, then we have to find one. We have to remove the stigma. One of the things about stigma uh, with mental health is that people think that, uh, I'm just gonna be very transparent and say, you're nuts, you're crazy. If you're gonna see a psychiatrist, what's wrong with you? And that creates the stigma. Of course, no one wants to be perceived as they're nuts or they're crazy or they're lunatic. And so what we have to do is begin to talk about these issues and we have to remove the stigma. One way to remove a stigma, and uh, uh, we started working on this initiative once, is to identify uh, uh, agents of trust in the community. A an agent of trust could be, uh, it, it, think about this, uh, older grandmother figure who has seen it all. She's uh, been there, she's done that, but everybody in the community trusts her. These are people that, that we need to reach out to and we need to give them some of just basic skills on how to do some triage, how to uh, talk and, and get these young people, if you will, because I keep mentioning young people because that's where it starts. Get them, start talking to them about what they're going through. 
have a, a resource list of uh, uh, mental health facilities, doctors that are compassionate and not judgmental that will spend the time and talk to these young people, all right? Um, I know that we're probably up for time and I'm uh, <laughs> being a bit conscious about that. Uh, I have talked about street, street violence and one of the things that we have in San Francisco, you probably have heard about it, is the street violence response team. The street violence response team, one of the things that they do, it's an organization uh, that works together to make sure that individuals and communities affected by violence get the services they need, both the crisis response system and the street violence response team. What happens, and I've seen them in action numerous times, um, what happens is that when someone is uh, killed or hurt on the street, the team comes together and they follow the victim to the hospital. Uh, sometimes they contact the family if the person has deceased, but they begin to stay with that family and work through uh, the processes sometimes until the, the 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 victim is back on their feet, and if not, uh, all the way to the point the person's being buried. One of the things about uh, that response team is that they do a great job of uh, helping with funeral services, and one of the things I, I think they are also are doing uh, are trying to help with mental health issues. If all of us here in this room all of a sudden heard a big boom, we know that something has gone wrong. We're impacted by that. Fear overwhelms us. We begin to panic. The same thing happens when you see uh, something that happens on, on the street. I've seen uh, bodies lying in the street. It's hard to describe that. It's hard to define what that does to you when you see it. I've stood by the bedside of and helped people leave here. It's, it's not an easy thing to do, and it affects you mentally. So one of the, uh, and I want to finish up with this, one of the, the uh, things that is really important to think about when you talk about uh, complicated grief, is that in the African-American community, it's not just the, the factors that most people go through, such as um, uh, anxiety, such as fear, uh, and, and uh, loss of sleep, but we are dealing also with social issues, racism, uh, economic disparity, and so forth. Those are coupled along with all the other issues that that uh, most people deal with in terms of uh, complicated grief. So I, I think at this point, what I'd like to do is uh, entertain any questions that you might have. Thank you, Bishop Jackson. You're welcome. Um, for your insight on this. Uh, deeply moving and important subject. Uh, I am looking forward to the time where the gun lobby is not uh, 
preventing the study of gun violence as an epidemic because it is an epidemic. Um, May I say this? I think we're all uh, dealing with a level of grief because of exactly what you just said. All of these mass shootings that are going on and uh, it's, it's not anything that you can discount. Now at this point, you know, you have to be very sensitive of where you are, your surroundings. You normally wouldn't have to do that, but because of the trauma, because of what we have seen as loss, and you know, and there's a level of grieving. You a little little, little child has gotten killed. You hurt behind that. You know, my wife sheds tears when she's watching it, you know. So yeah, things are different, and there are some solutions, President. Appreciate you saying that. So we, we're having this presentation in recognition of Minority Mental Health Awareness Month, um, and I'd like to open the uh, floor to public comment at this time. Are there any members of the public attending in person who would like to comment on this item? Members of the public who wish to offer comment on this item may present, come to the podium. You would have two minutes to speak. Chair, I see no members of the public in person who wish to offer comment on this item. Are there any members of the public who would like to provide testimony remotely? Please use the raised hand icon. Chair, I see no members of the public attending remotely who wish to offer comment Seeing on this. Seeing none, public testimony on this is now closed. Commissioners, do you have any questions or thoughts for Bishop Jackson? Vice Chair Shaw. Bishop Jackson, thank yes, you so much as a fellow clergy person. I was so grateful to see you and to hear your presentation um, about grief and um, addressing the issue of complicated uh, grief. As we know, there are various kinds of grief you have anticipatory grief, and you also have delayed grief. Yes. And I often think in the Black community, how with the delayed grief, how there is even no acknowledgement or um, recognition that an event that has taken place has affected mm -hmm. um, a particular individual. I had one uh, co-worker I'm reminded of um, who's from Ethiopia, born and raised, but moved to the States later in his life. His mother passed, and he never went to the funeral, never went right to the graveside and so he acknowledged um in our talking about um his situation that he was experiencing delayed grief and that he needed uh to go and address that um and so i just think about you know our young black men and women in our community that have these things happen and how again the delay is never acknowledged and so it comes out in various addictions through violence as you mentioned Absolutely. and so forth and so on so with the grief that is dealt with on a daily basis, um, especially more particular in certain communities, in our Black communities, um, and in Bayview, even as you were saying, um, are there various, um, you talk about resources. Um, do they know how to get access to these resources? Is there various signage, that sort of thing? Because sometimes people just don't know where to go, you know? So I was just curious about the accessibility to the resources um, to be offered to help 
um, our young people who who des desperately need counseling and need help. And, and you're absolutely correct. One of the things that um, a group of us were attempting to do was implement a program called Project Trust. Mm. And we felt that it was important that one of the most easily accessible places to get information would be a church. And uh, the challenge was getting pastors to buy into it because of stigma. The stigma is pervasive. It's, it's uh, you know, it, it, it seems to be like it's something, the way you explained it, it seems to be uh, relatively simple to do, but it's not. And we, we made some grounds and we made some, some successes, but um, you're absolutely correct. Most people don't know where to go. And then they don't want anybody to know that they're acutely depressed, clinically depressed people. What do they do? Eventually they'll commit suicide. Uh, suicide is on the increase. It is. Uh, I would venture to say that uh, there's another topic that's looming uh, you probably will be hearing more about. It's called community grief. We had community grief with George Floyd. Correct. Uh, we felt every emotion that was to be had, and including hatred, revenge, mm -hmm. all of these things, as we literally saw George Floyd being murdered before our eyes. Mm -hmm. And and so uh, uh, community Grief is something that uh, you're going to be hearing more and more about, and um, it's something that is real. You know? And the thing about it, it's inclusive. It has nothing to do with race, gender, social status. You know, you, 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 you're impacted by it when you hear it and you see certain things. You know, how many people are impacted by what they see uh, in the Ukraine, the war that's going on, when hospitals are being bombed? And... Uh, you, you think about yourself. You know, if you have any empathy about people, the empathy comes from a sincerity of your heart and that you feel for other people. Okay. Thank you for your work. Thank you. You're welcome. Commissioner Pimentel. Thank you. Thank you for your presentation and the work that you're doing. And it really resonated that it's often like a generational um, this doesn't exist, you can push through it, it's just in your head type of situation. And it's important for people to understand that you can get help and you can seek help. And so my question is, a lot of times those impacted, they can't take time off because they don't have the resources, you know, to take family medical leave or to call in sick or whatnot. So my question is, are there any type of resources for those type of people? Um, do you work with like other nonprofits to help distribute information about these different different issues? And yeah, those are my two questions. And so uh, it, it is in Bayview, there are some uh, community-based organizations that have these resources. And uh, the, the key is referral. <clears throat> this is why uh, you know coming to the church and training people how to do triage and then having the resources, knowing where to go and who to go to as a referral is important. You know? And so um, there, as I said, there are a few in Baby Hearns Point, but at the same time, it's getting people 
getting reaching those people, sitting down with them and knowing how to approach because they're going to tell you it's nothing wrong with me. <laughs> you know, and so how do you get to the point where you can build quote unquote trust enough? And it's not going to be a one-time situation. It's got to be a consistent. You're going to have to do some some follow-up, leg work, uh, uh, texting or phone calls. And uh, did you go, did you follow up on the referral I gave you? And calling the clinic, did, did uh, Carmichael come today or uh, whatever? You know, did he show up today for his appointment? You know, it's a lot of work. And the reason why is because mental health is really an epidemic, maybe a pandemic even, you know? <laughs> Do you work with any hospitals, you know, as those individuals, if they're taken to the hospital, those family and friends that are there who receive that devastating news? Are there any type of like partnership where they could get that information there about grief and where to go since it's like that impact is hitting in that moment? One of the things about hospitals is that uh, there are spiritual guides that work in the hospital. And a lot of times they're there to the very last moment, or they're there if uh, someone comes in and they're dead on arrival. Um, they're there to speak and, and work with that family and, and literally give them a package of information, of resources where they can go and uh, get some help. Yeah, thank you for that. Mm. Commissioner Imran. Uh, thank you, uh, Madam Chair. Uh, thank you, Bishop Jackson, for your presentation and sure. for coming before this body to present on a very important topic. I have a few comments here, and I'll move on to my question. Minority Mental Health Awareness Month is a time to raise vital public awareness and encourage anyone in need to seek help. Because of stigma and longstanding health disparities, mental health remains underfunded and misunderstood, disproportionately affecting millions in the Black and Brown community. According to the Agency for the Health Care and Quality Racial and ethnic minorities are less likely to have access to mental health services, more likely to use emergency departments, and more likely to receive lower quality care overall. This all contributes to a poor mental health outcomes, including growing rates of suicide. As we continue to confront a mental health crisis that has taken a grip on this city, anguish and despair we see on the streets every day, it is critical that we educate all citizens on this important issue and continue to reduce stigma. I'm proud to join my fellow commissioners to elevate the topic of mental health, promote long-term solutions for our city's minority communities and ultimately help save lives. So to everyone here and those watching on, online, I wanted to just put out the National Mental Health Crisis Hotline, 1-800-273-TALK. Once again, 1-800-273-8255. Moving on to my question, the pandemic has been especially disruptive on our children of color who have dealt with many uh, disruptions in their daily life, losing loved ones to COVID-19, while parents and caregivers were dealing with the fallout of mass layoffs and struggling to make ends meet, making it even difficult time even harder for families. As a former school teacher, I remain committed to making sure that the city is doing everything in our power to meet the needs of our children and adolescents and to address the youth mental health emergency that we face today. Can you explain why it is important to provide children of color with high quality mental health screening, prevention, intervention, and treatment services? Certainly, and thank you for that question. Uh, as I said, I keep saying this over and over. All of us uh, deal with grief. Some of us are dealing with complicated grief. But when you start uh, looking at uh, 
minority communities. Um, one of the things that there are some additional stressors that other communities don't don't face, you know, because you know, for instance, like uh, racism, you know, uh, discrimination, and poverty, you know, and it makes people di more difficult. These things inhibit people from really recovering because they're ongoing, they're systemic, they're part of who they are, their community, et cetera. And, you know, so in increased risk of mental health problems is one of the biggest problems that you will find in the, in communities of color. For children, it's, it's huge. A lot of times, and what we're seeing today is that more children are being raised by a single parent, mostly a mother who works and she's got to do something about these two or three children, maybe more than that. And then she's coming home to try to prepare meals, food, and so forth. She's exhausted. She doesn't have, she, she, she wants to, but she can't because of the condition that she's coming out of. And so, yeah, there's some additional stressors that uh, children uh, of, of color have to deal with. Uh, reduce access to care. You just said that, that's huge. It's huge because uh, I just explained that, you know, you got to have a parent that's willing to uh, shepherd that child and make sure, take off work. Can they take off work or do they pay their house note or their rent, you know? So, uh, and then the, the one big thing is that uh, a lot of our children, when they're going through a crisis, they isolate themselves because they feel alone. They're depressed, a lot of issues going on. So in, in terms, we, we have to do a better job in, uh, with, in, in our communities when we're dealing with uh, African-American, Latinx, uh, Asians. We have to do a better job of people who are marginalized and disenfranchised from the services that some of us take for granted. You know? and, and so that's, I don't know if I answered your question or not. Uh, and I thank you for that resource. Uh, another resource is the National Alliance on Mental Health, on Mental Illness. That's NAMI. Uh, some of you might know about them. Their, uh, their URL is www.nami.org. That's NAMI. And uh, they're here in San Francisco. It's uh, a national organization. We should cannot forget suicide prevention. If you know of anyone who uh, has shut down, anyone who's talking about hurting themselves, you should directly intervene. You should say something. Um, you know, we, we have to start listening to each other when they're, uh, when your spirit hurts, you doesn't see, you don't see the actual scars, it's internal, okay? And, and some, of the, some of the wounds that people have are deep, they're gashes. And it, it, it could take a lifetime to heal. You know, young girls who are raped and molested, uh, the reason why uh, they act out as they're growing up because they have not received the uh, mental health attention that they need. You know, no one's talking to them. They're ostracized and that's their fear. If I tell my mother, my mother may not believe me. She may blame me for it. I didn't mean to go that far. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Bishop Jackson. I, I agree. Raising that awareness, education that, that we're doing today on this commission helps catch those red flags and ultimately saving one life. It makes this whole effort worth it. 
Thank you again, uh, Bishop Jackson. Thank you, Commissioner. Appreciate you. Commissioner Johnson. Hello, Bishop Jackson. Thank you for your presentation. Certainly. I'm sorry I missed the first part of it, but I'm glad I was able to catch a portion of it. Uh, this is a topic that touches home with me. I've definitely grew up seeing a lot of this on the streets of Columbus, Ohio, where I grew up. So this is definitely a topic I've been grappling with my entire life. My family has been my community, and we continue to this day to grapple with it. One of the things that helped me throughout my process of grieving, um, and you mentioned the um, community grief, which I think is a really important mm -hmm. call out, because these things are things that we we go through together. We don't go through these in isolation. And one of the things that helped me along that process was community healing. And so I'm wondering, with the resources you discussed, are there things that bring together people in community, not just one-on-one? -on -one? One of the things that I found to be really helpful was to hear that the things I was experiencing, my colleagues, my friends, my brothers, my sisters, my cousins, they were also going through it. But we, the only way I found that out was we in, being in a communal setting, having those discussions, unpacking those experiences, and doing it, of course, with someone who was, as you mentioned, a trust agent. So I wonder if that is part of the resources you've been working on. Thank you very much. Um, as a minister, one of the things I've learned over time uh, is that you can pray, but action is more can be more powerful than prayer. Let the church say amen. <laughs> amen. <laughs> and, and so in, in addressing your question, one of the things that uh, I do and I participate in are vigils, you know, walking with the family, uh, I, I remember one time I was walking with, uh, we had a vigil over in, in Sunnydale and walking with uh, a mother, two mothers were walking with me. We were just talking and they were, they were very, very emotional. They were in tears. And I began to talk to them and found out from one that her son had gotten killed seven years prior, but she had not healed. She had not healed. She was still suffering. And then that, not that we should say we should heal. People shouldn't tell you, get over it. That's not the right thing. That's a very insensitive thing to say. But one thing that uh, I find that is uh, through, through church is having community gatherings, bringing people together, block parties. Uh, we've had block parties in Baby Hunters Point and uh, initially, people were looking over their shoulders because maybe they should not have been in that part of the community, but they begin to have so much fun that they forgot about it. So um, I understand exactly what you're saying. When you have events like that, you have to make sure you have resources. You have to have people from uh, uh, the, the medical field there. You have to have, uh, we invite the police officers to come. Uh, whatever we think that is important to make this thing a, a successful event, that's what we do. So you're welcome. Commissioner Jamar. Thank you, Bishop Jackson, for the wonderful uh, presentation. Um, the pandemic was, it's, was traumatic to a lot of, uh, to everyone, but to the communities of color. Um, uh, having worked uh, at the Mission Food Hub is, uh, collaboration and the mission to serve Latinx, but families in need of food. Uh, so we were distributing food to 9,000 families at the peak of the pandemic. Uh, 
and what we came to realize is what you said, like, um, and although it was traumatic, the silver lining of the, the pandemic was that it gave us a time to reset, refocus and rethink. Mm -hmm. And it forced us to bring mental health to the forefront, especially for the Latinx community. I will speak for them. And I know that's the case here as well with the African-American community. Do you feel that, and you mentioned that there was an initiative, Project Trust, to try to bring uh, mental health you know, out to the public, to, to families, but there is that stigma involved. And mental health was spoken about during the pandemic so much. Do you feel that now there are initiatives to bring back that, uh, that uh, the need to bring, let's say, agents of trust together to bring it to the forefront again? You know, I, I have to say this, that we tried to present this to the Department of Public Health, the behavioral uh, unit, and we got nowhere with it. Um, we put in a lot of effort. We had experience. We had um, a psych psychologists, clinical psychologists that were former professors uh, working in, at university levels that had joined in with us. We had even identified medical doctors, and we were not able to put forth our program. And um, needless to say, it was very disappointing. We now, the other thing that we've tried to do is just talk to other pastors about the program. But as I've said, I don't know if you know what it's like climbing up an oily pole. Uh, <laughs> you're trying to make, trying to go up that pole, but you're not getting anywhere. Hopefully, given the situation where we are, especially what the uh, president just said about uh, the gun violence, which is, I'm not sure, I'm not trying to be political about this, but I'm not sure what the gun rights folks are going to do now or what these other folks who are on in a certain uh, Republican, oops, I didn't need to say that, <laughs> but what people are going to do in terms of actually doing something about the gun violence because it's literally out of control. And now people are buying guns to protect themselves from those who are going to, so it's, what are you gonna do about that? It's, it's out of control. So uh, I'm sorry, to, so to answer your question, that we've got to find a way, and I'm hopeful that the behavioral uh, department and the Department of Public Health will do something about it. I, I recall mentioning it to, um, the director, the, the medical doctor, Grant, uh, about this just in passing. So and he's he's got more than just mental health to worry about, but it's becoming a huge problem. So, so nothing has been done as far as I know to answer your question. Commissioner Riley. Hi, um, thank you very much for your presentation and all your good work. You mentioned the uh, Project Trust earlier. Can you um, talk a little bit more about that and how does it work? Oh, okay. So Project Trust, um, I'll, I'll just give you uh, the overview of it, was going out literally recruiting, I shouldn't use the word recruiting, but inviting uh, family members of victims to come and to meet with us and to begin talking about their experience uh, and then enroll them in a training 
where they would be go through, I think we had at that point, maybe about uh, a 12 week training program that they would come every day for just a couple of hours. And uh, our psychologist would begin working with them to train them on how to do triage, how to uh, interview, how to provide even a low level of counseling to their colleagues, people, the, the lady that lived down the street, her son got killed. So that's the person that you would want to get in. Then you want to start identifying trust agents. Uh, you know, older folks uh, are either just somebody who's in a community that everybody looks up to. When something happens, everybody kind of gathers around his or her house or something because they seem to bring some type of solace some type of peace to the situation. And so the with Project Trust, uh, it was a multi-layer uh, proposal, uh, actually, that we were trying to put forward. And as I said, you know, it was the first working with the Street Violence Prevention Group here in the city and county of San Francisco and uh, identifying, uh, meeting with those families, working with the morticians, believe it or not. You know, I, I happen to know the mortician very well. And, you know, and I talked to him about it. He thought it was an excellent program because he could then refer to us. He could give us referrals and people don't have to accept the, the service. They could say yes or no, but we wanted to put forth that effort and uh, see if people would uh, accept what we had to offer. We strongly believed in the program. We thought that it was going to work and be successful. Uh, one of the things that you, when you are working in your community that you're looking at is large, you need budget. <laughs> you need budget to make it happen. And not, you know, not an excessive amount, but a, a, enough to meet the needs. And you need, you know, to draw people into the program with incentives, you know, uh, gift card, maybe, I don't know, you know, but you need to have something that will draw them in. And then when they get there, you have to make sure that you're just not uh, blowing in the wind. <laughs> People in the communities are smart. They'll try to buffalo them or blow smoke in their face. They'll catch on real quick. Thank you. You're welcome. Great. Okay. Well, thank you again, Bishop Jackson for making this presentation, we appreciate it. And um, I know all of, of the commissioners are concerned about mental health in our community and in the greater community um, and what we can do. And so I, I think we heard some good uh, suggestions that we can pass along to other, other commissions and departments in, in the city and county, as well as within our community. Um, we have an interfaith uh, group that meets that's been meeting and was meeting in, during the pandemic and meeting needs. And so having that on that agenda is, I think, a, a good thing to maybe resurrect some of these concepts um, in that forum. Uh, so I'm going to give that to uh, Secretary McKnight to follow up on uh, with that agenda. And with that, um, Thank you very much. And uh, we're going to call the next item. 
and I, I would say if you would if you want someone from the city to come and talk to you about this, I would recommend Jessica Brown. She's in behavioral, I believe, with the Department of Public Health. Thank, Thank you, you for having me. Thank you, Chair. Item five, recognition of the 59th anniversary of the Human Rights Commission. Members of the commission, past and present, will reflect on the history of the Human Rights Commission and its mission. This will be a discussion item. Do we have people who are going to? No, we don't. That's too bad. So we are there. We there, are some a level of conflict. Um, but experience. okay. So, <laughs> and Michael's not here because he's been here forever and he could also speak on it. But anyway, um, but we are acknowledging it. So there. Uh, this month marks the 59th anniversary of the Human Rights Commission here in San Francisco. And um, given that it's the 59th year, I will probably be recruiting folks to, to so that we can actually do something big for the 60th, which is next year. Okay, um, so, you know, it's a privilege under the city charter uh, to serve on, on, this, on this commission. It's an early chartered commission from 1964. And uh, a, there was a lot going on at that time. And, uh, you know, there, there were uh, demonstrations and various things going on on Van Ness. Uh, so close to City Hall and um, we're, it's interesting because what we saw in 2020 and this whole conversation about violence uh, and gun violence and uh, the grief that, that we're all going through um, as a result of the over a million Americans we lost during the pandemic. So th there's a lot going on. And, um, and we've seen other pandemics, including the AIDS and HIV uh, epidemic and people dying, and now people are aging. <laughs> and so, you know, we have a lot of humanity to take care of and look out for. And, um, and also to think about our role as, uh, as human beings. And if we're blessed enough to also be involved in that whole aging process and, um, and what that looks like. So our, our work from the very beginning, the very beginning, 59 years ago, has been to ensure that all residents of the city and county of San Francisco are treated with dignity and equity because we all deserve to be treated in a dignified way. And so when we leave here today and if we see unsheltered people, um, we must treat them with compassion uh, and think about what the solutions are and work towards those solutions. We, we can do that. So I open it to the floor for my uh, 
colleagues if you wish to comment on the anniversary, if you have any memories of the Human Rights Commission, um, or if you have any aspirations for addressing uh, the historic and current needs of, of our residents here in the city and county. Commissioner Kelleher. Thank you, Chair Clopton. Um, I've been on the commission a little um, short, short of time than um, Michael Sweet, uh, but I think I'm probably the second longest serving. Um, and, uh, and I'm honored uh, to be on the commission and to have participated over the years in a number of different um, initiatives that, you know, I think have, have made a difference um, in the way the commission operates um, and its impact in the community, um, uh, including channeling um, reviewing, channeling, and, and guiding, you know, millions of dollars into the community uh, through grants from the city uh, in the last few years. Uh, and that's been very uh, rewarding. Um, I do want to volunteer for the 60th Planning Committee. Um, and uh, because there is some kind of, there is, there is a history of the Human Rights Commission that predates the commission itself. Personally, on a personal level, I try not to get too focused on, um, the uh, history of the commission in terms of its 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 actual birthday because it's I, it's a year younger than I am. <laughs> so I uh, if I think about that too much, I get a little bit annoyed because it seems so historic and I don't feel historic. Um, but um, but at the same time, um, I would like to be involved because there is a history that over the years I've picked up on. We've had retreats where um, historic figures from the commission's past have come to speak. Some of them are no longer with us, including the founding chair. Uh, but um, there are others still who know that history very well. Um, and it certainly was the a, a very important impetus, I mean, a critical impetus to actually get the commissions um, established from what I remember. Uh, was the civil rights movement, you know, around the uh, uh, African American and, and the Black experience? But um, there was an in, there was an earlier uh, impetus in terms of planning around the discrimination that was occurring very blatantly, glaringly um, against the Asian community. And uh, a former commissioner, Doug Chan, um, he has some of that history, um, and his father was um, discriminated against significantly in, in trying to operate a small business and. And, and prompted, um, and because the, his father had a connection with the mayor at the time, um, was involved somehow in, in beginning the planning around, around a potential commission of some kind to focus on these issues, like discrimination issues. So I just, um, just there are layers and layers and layers, and I don't know all of it um, off the top, but um, there are people who know a, a lot more, and there's certainly a lot of archival documentation that we could pour over and uh, pick out some of the highlights um, to focus on uh, during this coming year. So thanks. Thank you. And uh, I have been talking a lot with Secretary McKnight about collating this kind of information. And so it's housed in, in one place and, you know, we can put some, digitize some things, put it on the website, as well as um, work now with, with Commissioner Kelleher. Maybe we'll have a 60th anniversary publication. Um, and and that would be a, a great thing. So, um, yeah. Well, just uh, but, one last thing, uh, and I think you probably know about this, but M Michael Pappas and Martha Knudsen, who were previous very very active commissioners um, and leaders on the commission, they um, found um, an archive 
uh, with a lot of documents that was that, that that were then turned over in the last couple of years to the Human Rights Commission itself, and I think the director knows where those are. Um, so, yes, just in recent years, we've been able to sort of uncover some things, and and those are yes in someone's file. So we need we do need to uh, exactly. Um, you know, so that highlight. everybody knows where it is, exactly. and you know, exactly. and a digitization, I think, project is a is a good one that maybe some of our tech people, connected people, can do that. Yeah, I talk with my hands. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, and yes, former Commissioner Pappas was the first person I asked to come today, but busy right had a conflict um but if we start our 60th celebration early <laughs> then we'll, we'll we can get in those in those calendars uh early on and lock, lock them in um and certainly one of the things that would be great is the the survivors having the list making the list and also having their um wisdom or mm. history you know however brief uh provided in this booklet would be fantastic in a publication anyone else wish to add anything or talk about any aspirations or follow uh, commissioner keller's lead uh <laughs> in volunteering <laughs> commissioner pellegrini um, well, I'm definitely not the senior member on on this commission, but I'm becoming in the middle of the group. So I'll I'll just say I think as you know we're reflecting and looking forward. I think this commission when I first joined, I was like, what's the Human Rights Commission actually do? And then when I started digging into it a little bit, it's an overarching commission that has lots of encompassing things underneath it. And I think for me, I'd like to just continue working with the um, LGBTQIAC committee and also just you know, promoting less housing discrimination with our, um, our internal group and continue to refer people to that because I've just received recent feedback from one of the people that I referred to that they actually helped with the case. So that was wonderful to see. We actually are helping people on the ground, which is just really important and continuing to figure out ways to lift up all communities so we can continue to work together because I think that's one of the biggest pieces we could do as the Human Rights Commission is help people in the city see their differences and work together to move forward in the same direction, in positive direction. Commissioner Riley. Well, I, I guess I'm the next uh, more uh, senior commissioner after, uh, after you. So, uh, well, when I was appointed uh, to be on this commission, just uh, two, two months, and then the pandemic happened, we were ordered to stay home, shelter in place. So I didn't have the chance to interact uh, personally with the rest of the commissioners uh, for almost three years, two years. And then uh, I'm so happy that now we can work together in person. We can discuss and talk face to face. And um, I have been working with uh, Secretary Mc McKnight on the Stand Together SF and uh, campaign for uh, solidarity. And it's been uh, very, uh, very interesting and uh, and I think it was good that we accomplished uh, quite a bit. So I look forward to continue to work on that. 
Great. All right. Uh, now we will open the floor to public comment. I don't see any members of the public attending in person. Is there anyone remotely who would like to provide testimony? Please use the raise hand icon. There are no persons attending remotely who wish to make comment on this item. Okay, seeing none, public testimony is now closed. I want to say that I'm grateful to all of you uh, for for your work and commitment, and um, and of course, I wish to acknowledge the Human Rights Commission staff and uh, and all of your dedication under the leadership of Dr. Cheryl Davis. Um, so we've been talking about this, but since I talked about the calendar issue, make sure you pencil in that July 2024 is when we will be having the 60th anniversary. So we're gonna be joyous and make it festive as well as informative. And, um, and we'll have, uh, we'll be developing together uh, more details ahead of that very special occasion. Mr. Secretary, please call the next item. Item six, activities in the community. Commissioners report out on events in the community they have attended or wish to notify the commission of an advance. There will be public comment on this item. Commissioners, would you like to share any activities you participated in since we last met or any upcoming activities you wish to amplify or have us amplify? Uh, and Commissioner Johnson. Thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, I was able to attend the San Francisco Pride Parade and I was able to march in the mayor's contingent, which was a complete honor and um, was able to bring friends to join me as well. Um, we also joined the mayor and several other members of the contingent here in City Hall for the after party, which was also fun, uh, but just wonderful opportunity to see the outpouring of support throughout the entire community uh, along the parade route um, and cheering on uh, the, the amazing uh, floats and participants in the parade. Um, so it was great to see such vibrancy here in the community. Thank you. Vice Chair Shaw. Yes, I would just like to announce that on Saturday, August the 5th, uh, our women's ministry is going to have a virtual presentation with uh, Justice Terry L. Jackson, who is the um, first appellate district, California Court of Appeal, a division three judge, a first African-American woman to be appointed in that position by Governor Gavin Newsom, along with Lajanae Shelton, who is a UC Law San Francisco student, um, who's going to come together and we're going to talk about searching for hope, the law and its impact on minorities and women, especially in the wake of the Supreme Court decision. So we'd love for you guys to join us uh, in our Bethel Zoom room. It is virtual, so you can be at home, you can be in the car, you can be in the park. And you can join us for that interesting, courageous conversation we're going to have on August the 5th. Thank you so much. Commissioner Keller. I, that was from before. Oh, okay. Yeah. Commissioner Duran. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, I want to bring up a, a very serious topic, and then I'll 
I'll end with two very positive events. It's just very moving for me. Uh, and I'm just going to read it. You know, I've been seeing articles uh, recently that are painting uh, the picture of endurance in really broad strokes, uh, associating the smuggling of drugs with this community. And uh, given the impression that they are the ones responsible for the fentanyl crisis in San Francisco, we do have a crisis. There is a crisis. I'm not denying that. But what it does, it deliberately targets uh, targets on the back of Central American and Latino immigrants in the Bay Area. I want us to be mindful of that. You know, seeing this, these series of articles actually reminds me of the scapegoating and blame uh, put on communities of color and marginalized um, people time and time again in history, especially uh, in hard economic times. I also, this also reminds me of what we faced during the pandemic. One community was impacted prior to the pandemic, another, and so on and so forth. If we look back in history, uh, we understand that this is not new. Um, you know, and a lot of these articles barely mention, like they say, the trauma, the grief, the loss, uh, and the broken immigration systems that drive a lot of these people to move here, the children that are left unaccompanied to cross the border. Uh, and there's hardly any mention on political and economic conditions that causes these children and these families to be in the conditions that they are uh, uh, in San Francisco and the Bay Area. So, you know, there's very little focus on their trials, their tribulations. So I just want to highlight that today, you know, as a human rights commission, uh, to be aware of these repercussions and uh, potentially human rights violations that this will have on normal, hardworking Hondurans and Landex families, because I've spoken with them personally, and I've heard their cries, literally, on how this is impacting them. And I want to, you know, shine a light on this matter, and I want to help preserve the spirit of San Francisco as a, as a humanitarian beacon of hope, and I welcome all of our commissioners to stand by those efforts. I just want to make that note on a positive note, on a positive note, because I love to end that way. Tomorrow, July 14th from 6 to 9 p.m., uh, an organization named Klecha is producing an event. It's called La Misión Nuestra Comunidad Unida. It is an effort to revitalize Mission District, uh, to bring forth these community gatherings, right, to celebrate, to patronize businesses, to bring out lowrider cars, to highlight culture, and, and, and again, support our local vendors. There will be free haircuts, too. <laughs> <laughs> Sunday, July 30th, I love to see this type of partnership from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Sunday Streets and the American Indian Cultural Center are collaborating to present the Valencia Street edition of Sunday Streets. There'll be music, both local you know, and native uh, vendors and family activities. So I welcome everyone to join us. Gracias. I will be there. Okay. Commissioner Pellegrini. Thank you, Chair. Um, I too attended the um, San Francisco Pride Parade on the 26th of June. I had to think there for a second. Um, and I hosted a gathering at my work for our LGBT community. And this year we had over 25 people show up. So it's fantastic to uh, gather people in community and also previously or earlier in the day attended the Alice V. Toklands uh, 
Pride Breakfast, and there were several commissioners there as well, and a bunch of um, political people from the city speaking and uniting the community and specifically around uh, trans rights. So it was fantastic to hear from Speaker Pelosi, Mayor, uh, Mayor Braid, and others. Commissioner Imran. Thank you, uh, Madam Chair. Just really quickly, I wanted, I, I attended an event commemorating the 33rd anniversary of the passage of the American with Disabilities Act, the ADA. Um, it was one of the most significant pieces of, of civil rights legislation that was ever passed. Um, so to the one in four Ameri Americans who live with a disability, I just wanna let you know that the passage of the ADA opened the doors to equality, independence, and freedom. And then just to recognize my own father who lives with a disability, um, it's not something that he lets bring him down, uh, but instead it's a source of identity and power and purpose. Um, so just once again, I just want to uh, let that be shown for the record. Thank you. And it is uh, Disability Awareness Month as well as the mental health um, awareness, minority mental health. So. And Commissioner Riley. Yes, I attended the, the first in-person um, st Stand Together SF and Campaign for Solidarity. And it was hosted by the, it was uh, at the Geneva Powerhouse and hosted by the Performing, Performing Arts Workshop. So we have quite a few organizations uh, attended. We have the uh, Self-Help for the Elderly, CYC, and uh, Asian, uh, Asians are strong. So it was a very good event. We get to know each other and what's going on. And uh, the, the Geneva Powerhouse is a very interesting place. And uh, Secretary McKnight put in a lot of work to put it together. So if we want to elaborate. Thank you. No. <laughs> Thank you for introducing that and uh, the Stand Together initiative, like so many things during the pandemic has, we've gone back to being in our homes and it's difficult to get people to come out. And yet our work in building solidarity, really the foundation is us being together. So the first coming together meeting, the first time we're meeting in person for our regular meetings, we did this just now. We had 12 people show up representing eight different organizations. I know that number may seem small. I think we actually really exceeded expectations. We got that many people to show up at a location across the city. And in that day, we showed off what kind of work was being done in the OMI to bring community members there together. We're going to bring this meeting out every other month to another location in the city, another nonprofit, and another opportunity for our our people to get together and get to know one another. And we open this up to everybody. This The Campaign for Solidarity is an opportunity for everybody to come together because we're stronger together than we are apart. So please, as I put these meetings out, feel free to share, uh, feel free to attend and share it with community members you know that would benefit by coming together and learning about the resources other nonprofits have to offer. Thank you, Commissioner thank, Riley. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I did want to uh, comment on the two, well, there are many, but on two US Supreme Court decisions that were made um, that were rendered in uh, at the end of the term in June and are troubling. And we are working on uh, public statements uh, 
from the Human Rights Commission about these. Um, I will say this, uh, the one that uh, is addressing the Colorado uh, law that includes L the LGBTQI uh, community in its anti-discrimination code and law um, being attacked in this way uh, by a totally fabricated, uh, not ripe <laughs> uh, set of facts. And um, with, I think, a plaintiff who had no standing. Uh, so those kinds of procedural anomalies with a US Supreme Court case and decision, subsequent decision, uh, certainly brings me pause. And uh, so I'm bringing it up in a public forum so that we can all be looking at that uh, because procedurally it had a lot of flaws. Um, it is a very flawed court. It has always been a flawed court throughout its history. And we know that from the decisions that it's rendered throughout the um, last uh, 150 years. So, <laughs> right. So, um, and a lot of people, I think, don't realize uh, that the colorblind that, let's move to the other one, dealing with Harvard uh, and um, the University of, I think, North Carolina, um, that they did not, the Supreme Court did not prohibit affirmative action. <laughs> That's not what happened. Um, it's a very narrowly tailored uh, decision. And that decision says that race cannot be a factor in the determination for college admissions, college and university admissions. Now, back in the early 2000s when the Supreme Court um, had Grutter before it in the University of Michigan and, and, and those cases, um, the military as well as corporate America, they all filed amicus briefs supporting affirmative action programs. And that's one of the reasons why this latest decision exempted the military as saying, yes, the military, of course, can, can, can do this, right? Um, in order to kind of blunt the force of the military's input into the decision-making. Um, and so looking at that, uh, both of these cases where one, you're not supposed to take into consideration a protected class, and then the other one, uh, you're uh, creating a new protected class under the guise of First Amendment or free speech uh, or freedom of religion um, principles in the Constitution. So 
I point out these few aspects so that we can feel um, actually optimistic <laughs> about, about the future, but also so that we can formulate together an answer to two questions about these cases so that these cases are not used incorrectly to eliminate the use of affirmative action as part of reparations um, and as part of the, not just in, in higher education or, or educational attainment in the US, but in every aspect of our lives, whether it's housing, uh, employment, healthcare, um, the full quid of what we should have as universal rights. Um, so don't, don't be dismayed because that was a very narrow ruling and it was not eliminating affirmative action, but yes, that's how it's being presented. Um, but know that that's not true. Um, and also know that there really weren't any Asians involved in this. <laughs> That the that organization was created by um, Edward Blum, B L U M, who was unsuccessful with Abigail Fisher a few years back, uh, and other white plaintiffs, and so he he created this uh, group under the guise of suing on behalf of uh, Asian students uh, who were not harmed, of course, by Black students being uh, admitted to those institutions. Um, it, and that's clear from all the data. And, they, and the Supreme Court did not find that they were harmed <laughs> in that way. So uh, that's the other part of that. They didn't win that. That's not a win, right? The only thing that happened was you can't take it into consideration. And so in the end, that will harm Asian American students, as well as um, everyone else can be excluded. And a lot of these quotas and all with these kinds of schools began long ago uh, with anti-Semitism. Um, and of course, with uh, separate but equal and, and segregation um, and anti-Black racism, but among white identifiers, they were uh, capping or excluding uh, people who were Jewish. And so uh, this whole concept of the new concept of uh, stifling diversity and inclusion and making those bad words, right? Those are now words that are anathema in corporate America, as well as in higher education, where they're trying to conflate blackness with poverty. And we all know that economic disadvantage uh, programs don't eliminate or eradicate racism. So there is no uplift that occurs when, uh, when race is not uh, acknowledged and addressed.
the last thing I'll say about all of this is that um, what I is what I always say, and that is race is a fiction. It's a concept. It's a construct. Is the popular <laughs> way of describing it. But racism is real, and only by addressing it, acknowledging it, and dismantling it can we make change. And I know that all of you are committed to making those changes. Um, and when I say stand up, because we're all Black, we are, because we're all from Africa, the, the cradle of civilization, right? We know that through science. Um, because that's what gives the lie to the fiction, right? Because we're all, we're all the same. 99.9% .9 of our DNA is the same. So give, given that, um, do I need to open to public comment? Why don't we do that? Um, our last opportunity for public comment. I see no one here in person. Is there anyone uh, remotely? Chair, there are no persons attending remotely who wish to Seeing none, comment. public comment for this meeting is over. And let's move on to uh, adjournment. Item seven, adjournment. I want to uh, thank all of the members of the public who uh, both remotely and uh, in our chambers here came today. And of course, I wish to thank all of the commissioners for participating in the July 13th, 2023 convening of the San Francisco Human Rights Commission. Our next meeting is scheduled for Thursday, August 10th at 5 p.m. And it will be here at City Hall. Um, be, we are not going to be able to go out into the community this year because of security issues uh, arising from the reparations um, report and the feedback from that. So um, we will have an opportunity on the on August 10th on our agenda to review. Um, in public, the reparations final draft, and also um, we'll have two presentations, one from the 10 Million Names Project and uh, one from uh, Dr. Jean Felser on California Slave State, uh, who will, both will give testimony about the different projects and, and information that supports our understanding um, and widens our understanding of reparations and the need for it. Um, and please note, of course, that the commission only meets once in July, and that's today, and then once in August. Is there a motion to adjourn? Motion. It's been moved by Commissioner Johnson and seconded by Commissioner Kelleher. Is there any objection? Seeing none, by acclamation, this meeting is adjourned. <laughs>